boys in this country who play instruments like the violin, of course, open themselves up to ridicule among their peers, as you can imagine. That's kind of a, like a cliche, and I was no different. I was, I was uh, hounded and and uh, basically made fun of uh, for years, and I always felt like kind of a an outsider, a person of ridicule. But when I got to Interlochen at the age of right ripe old age of 16 i finally for the first time in my life felt like these are all my brothers sisters these people are all like me welcome to rosin the bow an audio journey through the world of the violin family My name is Joe McHugh, and there is nothing I like better than a story about a hidden treasure. And if that story involves an old violin, all the better. That is why I traveled to Salem, Oregon in 2015 to interview Daniel Rouslin. Dan is a violinist who teaches music and violin at Willamette University. And Willamette University is where this remarkable treasure story begins. My name is Daniel Rouslin. I teach at Willamette University, which is considered the oldest university west of the Mississippi. In 1988, uh, they were redoing the um, the oldest building in the west, a university building in the west, which is known as Waller Hall, named after one of the, the early missionaries. They discovered between the floorboards of... Um, some of the, a couple of the upper floors, when they ripped up the floorboards to, to redo the floors, they discovered a, a raincoat that was buried there. And inside that raincoat, wrapped in 1928 dated newspaper, that was 60 years old at the time, was this um, interesting violin that looked very old. And the workman, um, uh, gave it to someone who brought it to one of the administrators who didn't know anything about violins. Obviously, that wasn't their, their area of expertise. So I was called in because I was, the vi- I was the only violin professor at the time. And the violin to me, had, uh, it, appeared to be, uh, it, it appeared to be an old instrument, possibly from the 18th century. The label inside it, said that it was a Guadagnini, and I'll, I'll just read what it says. It says, uh, let's see, Jacques Battista Guadagnini, and that it was made in 1703. It's a little hard to read the label. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of faded. But... Um, I knew that most labels inside of violins, especially old ones, are fakes. People put fake labels in all the time to try to get more money out of uh, out of instruments than than they're worth. So I, I knew this. I've I've been through plenty of fake instruments myself and lawsuits and the whole business. So I wasn't I wasn't uh, taken in by by this label. But the violin was was very old looking and it had lots of cracks in it and just the um the way it was constructed looked like it might be from by one of the old Italian masters, not necessarily Guadagnini. So 
I discussed with one of the local violin makers in Portland what he recommended. And at the time, there were very few experts left in America who, who could look at an instrument and know definitively what it was. It was, it was kind of like a dying art. And the, the last of those experts was a man named Dario Dottili, who was back in the New York area. So we had the violin shipped to Mr. Dottili, and he confirmed that it was indeed from the 18th century, uh, very possibly Cremona, but he, he, he didn't believe it was a Guadagnini, and he, he couldn't confirm wh- who he thought the maker was. It was he was a little bit um, miffed by it. And he recommended that the instrument be insured for about eight or nine thousand dollars at the time, which is way low to what we would consider insuring it for today. But uh, that's what the university insured it for for you know for about twenty six years. <laughs> and then we had it reappraised a couple of years ago by Edward Giesman in, in Portland, who's who's very knowledgeable about old instruments, probably maybe perhaps not as as uh, with the expertise of Dario Dottili, but he's uh, he's done a lot of research about them. And he believed that it was a Cremona instrument uh, also, and he, he recommended uh, insuring it for a lot more than than what the university had been. Um, I think he, I think he uh, recommended that we insure it for 25,000, uh, because again, it wasn't, it wasn't definitive who the maker was. So the the university went ahead and did that. And um, the the original intent of the administration was to put the violin on display in the lobby of Waller Hall, where it was discovered in some kind of a display case. And when I heard that that was their plan, I, uh, I immediately put up a protest and said, the violin sounds too wonderful to to put on display, it should be used, it should be played. And worthy students are showing up all the time needing better instruments. So why not use the violin for the occasional student who's an excellent player, but whose instrument is holding them back uh, and, they, and who can't afford a, a better instrument at, that, at, that, at this time? And I guess I made a forceful enough argument because the university uh, agreed to to that plan. And so it's been in, in my possession. Uh, I'm not the owner, obviously, but I've been sort of its caretaker for all these years since since 88. And it has indeed been been played by some of the better students, the better violinists who have come through. And I think it's really helped them progress. And I'm really happy to be able to offer them that. So it's it's been a wonderful instrument in that respect. So when it was first discovered, you have two things that are happening. One is the workmen are honest enough to bring it to the administration because somebody could have found it and said, oh, cool, a violin, take it home with them. That could be quite common. Uh-huh. So they've turned it over. And then I understood from what I heard that uh, some people did come forward making some claims that it was theirs, but it, could you go over that a little bit? Sure. Well, the, dis- the discovery was was published in the local newspaper, the Salem Statesman Journal, and the... Uh, the arts editor at the time was, uh, was of course, latched on to the, the discovery as one of his pet projects, and he did a couple of big articles on it, one with, with me holding it in front of Waller Hall and on the front page of the paper. 
And following the first of those articles, I'd say a dozen people came came forward from the area claiming that their grandfather had an instrument just like it in his possession, and uh, and it was stolen or lost, or but nobody could prove that this was the instrument that that they had any connection with, and um, there was there were most of the stories were very dubious sounding, <laughs> uh, and so. Um, well, what was the best one? Because. Of course, anyone hearing this story immediately starts to speculate. I mean, it's a broken heart. It's somebody hiding something because suddenly the the real owner will know. I mean, there there's something so unusual about somebody hiding this under floorboards, wrapping yes. it up in a, in a raincoat. Very appropriate for Oregon, by the way. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> At least in those days. Yeah, and in the 1920s. Yeah, All things, you know, 1928 who? was 1928. the date of the newspaper, so chances are it was that year that it was hidden. Right. So before depression, mm-hmm. but uh, so you just would love to know who who had done that or what. It was oh, a yeah. great story, a good novel. Has anybody tried any literary interpretation of this story? They may have tried. I think there may have been some people who had um, living relatives at the time. It's, it's possible that they asked, but I never heard anybody come forward saying, aha, I remember um, the situation in which a stolen violin was never recovered in the the late 20s. I never heard a story like that, so I don't think anybody succeeded in pinning it down. So it remained, to this day, it remains a complete mystery. Most people speculate that it was stolen. It must have been. Why would anybody try to hide it? Uh, unless uh, someone was, they were hot on his trail or her trail, you know. <laughs> but to pull up floorboards. Yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like places. an act of desperation, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and but of some intention. It's it's a very treasure story. Right. Somebody was going to come back, come back for it, and but get never it. Never came back, and of course, right. what their story was right. would be fascinating. And given the history of the building, mm-hmm. given the age of the violin, this could have come out on a covered wagon. In the very early uh, settlement of this area. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So uh, how does it compare with uh, the instrument you play for yourself? Well, it's, I, I, you know, I have, a, I have an excellent French instrument from 1860, but this is, um, this is possibly 100 years older than that, maybe even older. Ed Giesman said possibly the late 1600s that it could be that old. But... It's a very it's a very warm sound that it has a lot of the qualities of the Cremona instruments, I think. When I um, was teaching my last uh, performance major, Chloe Prendergast, she had been playing an instrument that was really holding her back tremendously. And after I heard a few lessons with her on this instrument, you know, I, I had, let's see, I had not had the Waller violin used by a student in quite a while. Because the last performance major I had before Chloe had an, a, a fine instrument of her own, and she didn't need a, she didn't need a, 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 a better instrument in a in an obvious way. You know, it was it was not holding her back. It was a good instrument. So this instrument, the Waller, had not been played maybe since around the turn of the millennium. So I had it was kind of out of sight, out of mind, and. When I realized that Chloe's instrument was, was really holding her back, it, it suddenly remembered, oh, we have that Waller. Why didn't she try it? So I, I uh, had her play it, and 
after about three or four notes, her eyes just popped open because she realized that she had never played an instrument anywhere close to that quality. And she just, she couldn't believe that this was even a, a remote possibility that she could use this instrument for her college years. But that's exactly what happened. And so she used it for three years. Yes. And then when she graduated, she made some effort to see if there was any way she could continue to play it? Yes, she did. And um, How'd that work? And the university was willing to to lease it to her, but she was going to be responsible for covering the insurance, and then there was a fee on top of that, an annual fee that they, that they uh, asked. And she decided to take her chances with looking for looking for a better instrument because you know she would be paying all this rent in insurance and not ever owning it so she decided to go the route of, of looking for a better instrument and um, she did find an instrument that that she liked I don't think she liked it as well as this but um, but it, it's it's holding her over and what does she do now is this her livelihood playing uh, yes she's um She's a pl- she's interested in Baroque music. She wants to be a, a Baroque specialist. Her mother is a member of the Colorado Baroque Orchestra in Denver, and Chloe is actually playing in it this year, as um, the year following her graduation. And she's been accepted to the University of Washington, which has a very strong Baroque music program. And so she hasn't quite decided what she's going to do next year, but that's a strong possibility that she'll enter the the University of Washington program for graduate school. So this idea of the violin, you were you were talking about, you know, what makes a good violin and uh, I love this idea that uh, when she played this better instrument how much she suddenly realized was possible. How much the instrument informs as a medium mm-hmm. informs what you can do musically. Yeah. That's a lot of what this series is exploring. Mm-hmm. It's really what our relationship to this box with some wires on it and a little bit of varnish. It 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 has so shaped so many lives, your life, your yes. entire life, shaped yes. by this thing. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so that's true. why don't we get a little bit about your story and how you came to the violin and maybe the first good violin. Maybe your first your first violin, and then eventually your first good violin. Okay, and where you grew up, that would be great. Okay, well, I spent my first uh, my very earliest years in Philadelphia while my my dad was uh, fighting in World War II. He actually was one of the people who landed on Normandy Beach right after D Day, and um, so I lived with my maternal grandparents in Philadelphia until he returned from the war in 1945. And then we moved to his hometown, which was Providence, Rhode Island. And my mother played me lots of recordings, lots of records. As her father had been a violinist, semi-professional. I think when he, before he emigrated from England, he, um, he conducted a dance band there, and he did play violin himself. Not professionally, but, um, but that, was, that was his instrument. And so it was definitely in in her family, and to a certain extent in my dad's family too, though though not as much. I was supposed to start piano lessons first about the age of six, and matter of fact, I think a teacher was already lined up for me. But before I could start those lessons, I um, went to a an assembly in my uh, elementary school. I was I guess I was in second grade, 
And I heard one of the older students play uh, a Stephen Foster melody on her violin at the assembly. And all of a sudden, that's the instrument that I wanted to study, not piano. <laughs> I wish I had studied piano. It would have given me a better foundation as, 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 a, as a music teacher, an overall musician. But the violin consumed my, my early years and, and then beyond. So that was, that was my main focus. And what was the first violin you had? It was a, a hand-me-down from someone in my, in my dad's family. It might have been my grandfather, my paternal grandfather had a had an old half-size instrument in his possession, and I started on that and gradually moved up till I got a full-size. My maternal grandfather, who was, was still living in Philadelphia, helped me purchase a, a couple of violins uh, by, by a, a maker that, or a dealer that he knew personally. And matter of fact, my brother still has one of those early violins that, that was handed down from me. But uh, yeah, I moved up through a series of, 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 of instruments. And at one point I purchased an instrument in Chicago that turned out to be a fake. And I found that out when I went to uh, William Minnig uh, and Sons in Philadelphia to trade it in for a better instrument and, and when I was in graduate school. And he looked at it and he said, I'm sorry, but this is not a... Uh, Peak was the name of the maker that was, was, was supposed to have been a Peak, a, a French instrument. And said, this is not a Peak, and it's probably worth about a third of what you paid for it. So he recommended that I get an attorney and file a suit uh, against the, the dealer who had sold me the fake, which I did. But what the attorney didn't understand, uh, and he should have, because he was, he was an Illinois attorney, was that Illinois is a buyer beware state, which means that as long as the certificate said, in our opinion, the instrument was made by a peak, that's all they need to say to, to give them that leeway, that, that escape, that escape route so that they're not held liable. So I ended up um, having to drop the lawsuit. What did it cost you? Oh, I don't remember. It was it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars at the time. This was back in the late 60s, early 70s. But I did manage to um, act contrite in front of the dealer and said, uh, because I wanted something out of out of the this experience. And I said, uh, I'm so sorry you know, that I was made this terrible mistake. And I was, I was given bad advice. And um, I'd like to trade this instrument back for something else. And by that time, I, I had a I had a decent instrument, and I didn't need a better violin at the time, but I did need a better bow. So I traded it for a couple of, of bows, and they and they were both supposedly made by Tubbs. I know that one of them definitely was made by Tubbs. The other one's a little dubious, <laughs> which which you wouldn't be which wouldn't be surprising considering where I bought it. <laughs> so. So you took a risk and doubled down on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm still playing on one of those Tubbs. And uh, are you partial to the to the French violins? Is there something inherent about a French violin or sound or quality? There's a darkness to the sound that, that, that makes it almost viola-like that I, 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 I prefer. Yeah. Italian instruments tend to be more brilliant than the, the French instruments. I know this is a gross generalization, but uh, at least the ones that I've come in contact with have, have been darker instruments that I've enjoyed. Have you been to where they were made? Um, the one that you play now? No, I haven't. I haven't. 
Vion was uh, in Miracourt in France, and I haven't been there. So you've talked a little bit about yourself and the, and the path of the violin for you. When did you know you were going to do this full time? This was really your thing, besides playing like your grandfather, playing mm-hmm. semi-amateur on a, on a weekend orchestra. Yeah. When you said, this is it, I'm going to teach this. And what's the difference between playing and teaching? Hmm. Well, I don't know if I, th- if I thought in terms of teaching when I made the decision to be a musician. I, uh, I studied violin uh, as, you know, as a six, seven, eight-year-old. And, and like so many kids at that age, you know, I, I did it not always with my whole heart in it. Uh, I, um, I practiced for lessons, sometimes harder than, than other times. But um, I can't say I was passionate about it. But I did enjoy recordings. I loved listening to music. And my, uh, my mother bought a recording to give to my violin teacher as a thank you present for teaching me. I guess, you know, parents do this uh, for teachers. You know, they'll give them presents once a year as kind of an extra thank you. This particular recording was a 10-inch long playing recording of Joseph Segetti playing the Mendelssohn Concerto. And I think, I think Barbarelli was the conductor one of one of the uh, British orchestras. And I asked her if I could, if I could listen to it before she gave it to him, you know, and she said, uh, yeah, you see, let's see if, let's see if you like the performance before I give it to him. So I didn't particularly know the Mendelssohn Concerto when I was nine, but I, I listened to it and I became hooked on it. And I fell in love with it so much and I, I, that I tried to write down the music of, of the solo part off of the recording. And that, in, that entailed picking up the arm and putting the, the needle down multiple times. And I did this so often that I actually put a hole right through the record. So obviously we could no longer give it to my teacher. <laughs> the, the, the record was now mine, <laughs> semi-destroyed. But that uh, experience, I think, was the turning point for me. That's when I knew this is it. That I, I don't, there's nothing else that I like better. And so um, fortunately, my, my parents uh, supported me in that and made sure that I had the you know, kinds of, especially summer musical experiences, sending me to music camps and eventually to national music camp at Interlochen in Michigan, which is one of the best in the country. And I remember my first experience there. You know, boys in this country who play instruments like the violin, of course, open themselves up to ridicule among their peers, as you can imagine. That's kind of a, like a cliche, and I was no different. I was I was uh, hounded and, and uh, basically made fun of uh, for years. And I always felt like kind of a, an outsider, a person of ridicule. But when I got to Interlochen at the age of, right, ripe old age of 16, I finally, for the first time in my life, felt like these are all my brothers and sisters. These people are all like me. They're all classical music nerds. And I remember the first time that the orchestra started playing that I was in the National High School Symphony Orchestra. And I'd never been in an orchestra that sounded that good. And I was just, I was in a little hog heaven. 
because not only was I socially accepted for what I did, but I was having this incredible musical experience that was totally uplifting and inspiring. And um, I went there for three summers, and I know that had a tremendous impact on, on my life. So your dad fights in the war mm -hmm. against the Nazis, the whole regime, super race. I mean, it really was. That's what was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, he comes back. What was the work that he did? He was a dentist. He went. In, his dad was a dentist, my maternal grandfather. And, and um, when he came back from the war, uh, my grandfather invited him to come in and have a practice with him, which he did for a number of years before he branched out and opened his own practice. So why do you think when you said you wanted to be a musician, I mean, he's looking at your livelihood, what you'll do. Certain people have certain ideas. Yeah, you know, this mm -hmm. is not a serious profession, the arts. Why did he support it, do you think? Well, you know, I don't think he, at least he never said, you'll never be able to make as much money as you will if you go into medicine or dentistry or something like that. He never said that. He may have thought it, however. What he did say, and he saw this very much in my own life, was that music was a highly political kind of a profession, and that um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of competition, a lot of politics, a lot of backbiting, people stepping on other people to try to get ahead. And he said, Are you, he saw some of the people that I had to interface with, and. He said, do you really want that kind of a life? And I said, I'll take my chances, <laughs> you know. And I think in retrospect, I think every every profession has you know, a certain amount of politics in it. And of course, he was self-employed, so he had a different perspective on it. But So how did it then segue into you teaching? And how is that different? Well, I didn't ever, ever envision myself as a concert soloist. That's not what I saw myself doing. And I didn't see myself as being an orchestral player either. My my ideal job, if I could, if I could frame it, when I was in school was that I would teach music on the, on the college level, play in a faculty chamber ensemble. That So I would have that, that combination of um, being able to make music and teach music at the same time. And that's what you've been able that's, to do? That's what I've been able to do. So, And I particularly like teaching in a place like Willamette because I'm not just teaching violin and then playing with the, with the faculty. I'm, I'm teaching violin. I'm teaching music theory. I'm coaching chamber music. I conducted the orchestra for seven years that I, that I started back in 1997. So I've, I've been able to have a multifaceted teaching career. I teach general music courses too, uh, like uh, I taught a course called The Art of Listening, another one called The Concept of Death in Western Classical Music. Um, I've taught, uh, well, we have to, every three years we rotate uh, in a, in to teach a, a, a freshman introduction to college course called, called Freshman Colloquium, well, called College Colloquium, actually. That's the official name of the course. And we each get to design our own course. So I've taught two of those, since they revamped that curriculum where we get to design our own. The first one was called Getting Down and Dirty with Classical Music. And the one I just taught last fall was called Classical Music in America, Here Today, dot, 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 tomorrow. 
And that was a study of the, the, the serious situation that lots of classical uh, art music organizations, symphony orchestras, chamber music societies, opera companies are finding themselves in in this this day and age, which is uh, a lot of them are in serious trouble financially. And a lot of that has to do with, well, there are multiple factors, but uh, the the age for these uh, these concert series seems to be getting older and older. And millennials are not taking to classical music like they as they want as they once did, and so it's it's an uphill battle to draw them into these concerts. And so, classical music organizations have had to struggle and become very resourceful and innovative in order to survive. And I'm pl- I'm playing in one right now that's in that situation, so I know what they what they're going through. I recently interviewed Mark O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And he, and it was a great interview. And but at, towards the end of the interview, he talked about his understanding of how music, violin music, should be taught in in America, particularly drawing on the American idioms of yeah. music, the folk, and all the different uh, influences, klezmer, all the things that come into making the American experience unique. Right. And he felt that, uh, you know, I guess in some ways he's at war. I don't know with the Suzuki method, but with this idea that it's all. Western European or it's European classical music. Right. Where, where do you come down in that in terms of understanding that uh, not losing track of your mission, but also being relevant? And like you said, the kind of students you see coming in, are they taking this violin in directions that surprise you? Or, or is there an openness to yeah. what, what the music is? What's happening to music, particularly the violin? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the very last... Um, violin major that I graduated just this just this last uh, the end of last fall semester was actually from Alaska and she was more of a fiddler or at least as much of a fiddler as she was a classical violinist she had both of those influences and I could see that the fiddling that she had done could had the potential to really inform her classical playing if she let it but I, th- I think her her impulse was to shut that side of her off when she tried to play classical, and so I said, "Look, you know, you're you're such a natural fiddler. Why don't you play this Bach as if it's a fiddle piece?" And immediately she started to free up a little bit. And I think if she can carry that concept into her classical playing, it's going to really make a difference. Now that we've had a chance to hear Dan's own story. Let's return to the Waller violin. One of the things I do remember what I was going to say earlier about uh, the Guadagnini is uh, it sat for a fairly long time without being played. What's your thought on this idea that violins really do need to be played regularly for their voice to be active? And how long does it take to kind of revive an instrument, starting, of course, when it had been under the floorboards for so many years? Yeah. Can you hear that difference in a violin when it's played? Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, every instrument sounds better once it's once it's played, uh, up to a point. We know that a, a brand new, a newly constructed instrument has this kind of a raw sound to it at first, and then after several months of being played, that rawness goes away and it starts to sound much much more refined. And the the Waller violin was no different. You know, it had lain dormant for sixty years, if if we're to be believe the the nineteen twenty eight date of the newspaper, 
and it it sounded pretty good even even for that given that we had some preliminary repair work done on it in portland by david kerr uh, to get it up to playing condition so that it was it was more play worthy and once those adjustments were made it, it it definitely sounded a lot better and then we had ed giesman do some some more extensive work on it about five years ago when chloe was going to going to use it so that brought it up to an even better level of, of uh, sound quality a higher level so um yeah the playing definitely helped uh we didn't make before and after recording so we can't really quantify it. it's just more of a subjective feeling that it it just kept sounding better and better the more it was played and the more work we had done and you're the one who would know yeah you're you've known it since the whole time it's been here yeah would you play a few notes on it then? sure that'd be great Before we end this podcast, I want to share with you a story that Dan told me. What prompted the telling was that while I was interviewing him about the Waller violin, I had a sudden urge to cough, but I was determined to hold it in until Dan had finished his train of thought. You might know what that feels like. Finally, he paused, and I let out the cough, much to my relief. Well, that got everyone laughing, and Dan related this story, which caused me to grab my handheld microphone so I could record it. When I was an undergraduate at Oberlin Conservatory back in the 60s, this, of course, was the height of the Cold War. The Cuban Missile Crisis had just occurred. And there was this constant threat and feeling that life as we knew it could end at any moment. So we decided as a string quartet that if we, if we knew, if we heard that the bomb was coming, that the missiles were aimed at us and they were on their way, that we would... We would get together and we would play string quartets until the end. And fortunately, we didn't have to do that, but that was our, that was our plan. That was your pact. That was our pact, right. Yeah. Um, I played in a contemporary music ensemble in Washington, D.C. Uh, back in the 70s called the 20th Century Consort. And one of the works that we performed was Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, this was a, a monumental work for a clarinet, violin, piano, and cello. 
that Messiaen wrote while he was uh, in a concentration camp, a German concentration camp, uh, during World War II. And he wrote it for uh, the musicians that were, um, that were in prison with him who happened to play those particular instruments. Well, one of the movements, which is called The Abyss of the Birds, is for clarinet alone, and the other three musicians uh, basically sit there and listen respectfully while the clarinetist plays this long, spacious melody, most of which is, is extremely pianissimo, very, very quiet, and very atmospheric, and the slightest pin drop would destroy the mood of that, that music. Well, right in the middle of this gorgeous clarinet solo, this very quiet, meditative music, uh, I started to get a, uh, a throat tickle, which proceeded to get worse and worse. And the urge to cough was almost uh, in, unsuppressible. And I managed to suppress it, but at great cost. And at one point, the tears were running out of my eyes uh, with the effort to keep the cough from coming out. And Later on, someone in the audience said, uh, they were sitting in the front row, I believe, they said, uh, I saw you during that clarinet movement, and you were so moved to tears. Uh, you know, I was moved to tears, and I said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that. Uh, I was moved by it, but I mostly had to, had to cough like crazy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, to get links to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I would also like to thank the owners and management of Hampton Inn Hotel in Salem, Oregon. They gave us a place to stay when we visited their city, and we're very grateful. And now we will end with two quotes related to treasures, the first by St. Augustine and the second by Joseph Campbell. Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure, there your heart. Where your heart, there your happiness. It is by going down into the abyss that we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. ¶¶